to the March 2006 podcast of Ordinary Means. You'll find us on the web at OrdinaryMeans.com. My name's Sean Nolan, and I'm your host here this afternoon. And once again, I'm sitting at the table with Matt Bowling, Peter Jones, uh, three ordinary men calling you back to the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary Means exists to call the Church of Christ to Reformation, back to a trust in God's means, the way God says he works. That's his means. And the way God says he works in his word is through the word, through his sacraments, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and through prayer. All of these as the primary means God uses to seek, save, and sanctify the lost. Now, perhaps some of the folks listening uh, to this podcast are not familiar with this phrase we're bantering around, the the title of our podcast, Ordinary Means. Uh, The ordinary means refers to the ordinary means of grace, the word sacraments and prayer. And we get the phrase from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, For some of you may not be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's a uh, historic church document that's been the statement of faith for churches since the 17th century. Uh, particularly those in the conservative Presbyterian denominations, but also, and some of you may not be aware of this, uh, the Baptists as well. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, written in 1689, uh, was based almost entirely upon the Westminster Confession. Uh, They take this same question. Uh, Those in congregational churches may not be aware that uh, the congregational churches in America agree with the Westminster Confession. Obviously, there's difference. In fact, the guys around the table here and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, that uh, obviously there's distinctions when it comes to uh, baptism and church government. But for the, the vast majority of these confessions are all identical and all agree that God's ordinary means, the, the ways that God normally works, are through his word, through his sacraments, and through prayer. Uh, so let me begin this morning, uh, this afternoon, by reading uh, from the Westminster Confession. Uh, this is question 88, asks the question, uh, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption? And it answers it. It says uh, that those ways are his ordinances, especially the words, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, when we read that, um, what we're reading is that is we're reading a description of a healthy church, a church that is benefiting from Christ, a church that is experiencing the benefits of redemption, uh, a church that is in touch with what Christ is doing in their lives, a church constantly involved uh, in God's ordinary means is going to be a healthy church. Uh, so ordinary means is, is not something that we can put off. It's important stuff. And so we want to begin uh, asking this question. Guys, how do, how do the ordinary means make a church healthy? I think that one of the ways that it keeps a church healthy is it keeps us focused on the right thing. If we're the ones who set the agenda, if we're the ones who are picking the ways to grow, then it becomes sort of instinctive to focus on ourselves, our ideas, uh, focus on our own self-diagnosis, and we end up actually distracted from the glory of God. But if we keep the focus on God and his word and not on us, if we allow the word, the sacraments, and prayer to be that which is forming us, We find ourselves drawn to God's glory. We find ourselves drawn to our dependency upon God, to our need for Christ and the need of others for Christ. And that's that's the essence of a healthy church that's consumed with the glory of God and with his plans and what he wants to do. Which takes us back to the first question in the in the confession. Right. 
what is, yeah. you know, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Absolutely. So would you agree worship is central to what we do? It's what we're made for. Absolutely what we're made for. Peter, you want to add? Yeah, I think uh, the way the ordinary means makes the church healthy. A, just like the confession or the catechism there said, it is effectual to salvation for the elect. So this is the way God saves the elect is through these means. Not just through personal evangelism, but through the baptism, Lord's Supper, prayer, and the preaching of the word. All of those um, are made effectual to actual salvation. So I think man is saved through these things. The elect is saved through these things. I also think that it makes us the church healthy by making us distinct from the world. Hmm. These are the marks and the rights by rights, R-I-T-S, mm-hmm. rights by which we are set off from the world. This is the way we distinguish ourselves from the world. The world does not eat at the Lord's table. The world is not cleansed by baptism. The world does not hear the word of God preached. And so in the corporate setting, this distinguishes us from those in the world. And I think one of the reasons we are so healthy, unhealthy today is because we have lost these distinguishing marks. And these marks make us, uh, because we've lost them, we are pretty much a lot like the world in the way we do things. And so the world sees nothing separate, nothing different. And paradoxically, the more different we are, I think the more drawn to us the world will be. The world will see the glory of the church. The world will see the glory of Christ. And because we've denigrated that and despised those things, the church is unhealthy and the world has no interest in us. Sure, I mean, I think your your ordinary businessman probably hears a better speaker at his motivational conference uh, than he does in the church. And so if we're going to try and play on that field, that's how we think we're going to motivate people is our prowess at, um, at rhetoric, um, we're going to lose. Exactly. But if that's, if that's the field we want to play on, we want to compete in terms of how good our music is, we want to compete in how good our speakers are, instead of competing with the power of God that we find in the gospel. Um, we're going to lose. That betrays a, a trust in ourselves and our own ability versus uh, God's working through his Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Well, what, what is it? Some of, the, some of the preachers in the scriptures themselves, isn't it? It's speculated that uh, the Apostle Paul had a speech impediment of some sort, that that was his thorn in the flesh. Well, and even he says, he, he comes to, talks to the Corinthians and he goes, you know, I didn't come to you with eloquence. And certainly he was exceptionally well-trained for the ancient world. He knew mm. a lot, but that's not what he was passionate about talking about. He was passionate about talking about Christ and him crucified and the cross and the gospel. And he didn't see the power in words, but the power in the word, in the gospel of salvation. I think for a lot of Christians, we think to ourselves, if we get serious and take the sacrament seriously and take preaching of the word seriously and take corporate prayer seriously, then we're going to drive people away. The scriptures, and that, that betrays a complete lack of faith. The scriptures go exactly the opposite direction. When you take God's word seriously and you take the things he's given to us seriously, the world is going to be drawn to Christ. Not just, uh, we're not just going to have spiritual health and spiritual growth. We will have numerical growth because of that. And that's not a prime motivation necessarily. But it is a fact. Men are drawn to glory. They're drawn to splendor. They're not drawn to, to the... Uh, 
the, the way things always are everywhere, you know, the, the average, so to speak. And I think sometimes the preaching of the word, because it is dressed up with rhetoric and not plain and straightforward, and because certainly the sacraments and prayer have not been a strength of the 20th and 21st century church, um, Protestant church in particular, I think there's, there's a reason the church is unhealthy. And part of that reason is that we have not defined ourselves closely enough by these ordinary means. And have tried to define ourselves by worship styles or other things which have led to uh, serious, unhealthy church. Can, can we keep on this for a second, John? Yeah, I was absolutely. just pondering that um, recently, well, maybe a year ago in our church, we spent some time um, studying worship. And uh, we spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, which is... Um, you know, helpful. It talks to us a little bit about, at least scripturally, what is supposed to happen when an unbeliever walks into a church and experiences worship. And most of the time, what we are thinking about um, when an unbeliever walks into a church is that we want them to be comfortable. And that drives us a lot of things away from a, a forthright preaching of the word, a regular uh, celebration of the sacraments. Um, but it the experience scripturally is if an unbeliever or someone doesn't understand comes in while everybody's prophesying, he'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and it'll be judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be laid bare. This is First Corinthians 14, 24, 25. It's such, it's such an instructive text. I, so, I love this. So he will fall down and worship God exclaiming, God is really among you. So it, to me, the test is whether somebody walks in and through the worship and through those who are around them, is everybody having because God is present there by his spirit because you're using his means in Isaiah 6 experience because that's what's described here is Isaiah 6 and, and Isaiah seeing the glory of God and display and seeing himself as a wicked sinner and just saying I'm unraveled I'm undone I'm finished whoa and um, is that what's happening well, it, it raises such a such a good question is do we do church for the believer or do we do church for the unbeliever? Because what that text, what, what 1 Corinthians 14 is saying, is that that unbeliever is coming into the midst of a worship service geared toward believers. And they're viewing believers unhypocritically. They're, they're seeing them in the midst of worshiping God uh, with their whole heart, and it's that glory. Peter, you said this a minute ago. She talked about the attractiveness of worship. The worship is to be attractive. But the thing that's attractive is not the men doing it. The thing that's attractive is the God that's being worshipped. Yeah, and God, God is there. I mean, that's, I, think, I think the thing is, worship is what we do on Sunday mornings. And it is a, impossible for an unbeliever to participate in that act. They can watch they can see, but they cannot do worship. It is impossible because worship requires that covenant relationship with God. And an unbeliever coming in, whether someone who professes to have faith but doesn't, or whether it's just an unbeliever who's coming in to observe the worship service, cannot participate in, in the truest sense of the word. And I wanted to myself that Corinthians passage you mentioned there, Matt, very helpful. I wonder how many people leave our congregations, unbelievers, and go tell their friends, you know what? God was there. I'm not sure I'm going to worship there. I'm not sure I want to go back, but I can tell you this. God was there. Mm. And that really unsettled me. 
I'm really not very comfortable this Sunday afternoon because of having been at that worship service. And I don't think there's a lot of worship services where that can be said. I don't think it requires any great existential experience per se. I just think it requires the regular preaching of the word, the administration of sacraments, proper baptism, and corporate prayer that's grounded in the word. I think that some of this flows back on uh, mid-19th century emphasis on the fact that, especially Charles Finney, that we're the ones who can create the environment where people's lives are changed. And so if we believe that, then we'll do all that we can to create an environment where we think like people's lives will be changed. And this may sound really bold, but I think that God is happy to stay away if we don't think we need him. And so if we think we can work it up, if we think we can bring revival, if we think that we can change people's lives by how persuasive we are or how good our music is or our drama or whatever, instead of relying on the fact that this is an absolutely hopeless endeavor, that we positively need the Spirit of God to come and fall upon the one who preaches and the ones who hear, uh, the ones who pray, the ones who come to the sacrament, maybe the Spirit's just happy to stay away because we're saying by what we do, we don't need you. Now, are you actually suggesting, Matt, that sometimes the worship might be uncomfortable? I think that it probably is uncomfortable sometimes even for us who lead it. Hmm. Because even as we sing songs, uh, as we pray, even leading prayer, those of us who are ministers, sometimes we're praying things that we know are the things to pray, but we know that they have not been that which have typified our hearts each week. And so we're in this worship where we're leading the people in covenant renewal, not as perfect ones, but as uh, imperfect ones. I, I frequently say as I lead worship in my congregation, you know what, if you're at all, if you've been at all like the minister this week, <laughs> you've got to come and confess your sins because that's what the pastor needs to do. Um, so yeah, it, I think that worship to some extent is uncomfortable because it pushes us back to the gospel. And the gospel is an offense, it's a stumbling block, even to us as believers, because we're still self-righteous. We still don't want it. We still want to make our own way. Which is why repentance needs to be such a big part of our worship. And I, and I wonder uh, how many churches have, have lost that. Um, I, the idea of, of silence in a church service, hmm. a, a time of silent confession of sin, where there's no music playing, there, there's nothing to distract you, you know, except maybe the kid in the pew in front of you. You mean that horribly uncomfortable couple of minutes when oh, nothing happens? That's right. That's right. And I think that is... Now, I think a lot of churches get that when they take communion, when the mm-hmm. elements are, are being... Uh, are being delivered to the people if you have one of those churches where they you uh, hand it down the row as it were then you uh, I think in those in those churches particularly if there's no music playing at that time and I would encourage folks to, to try that just tell the pianist I don't want you to play today I want people just to sit there them and God nothing nothing in between that's not to say that music is bad at that point but every once in a while that really helps people uh, to stop, because in our lives we don't stop. We don't have that kind of margin in our life. You know, I live I live here at the church. I've got 40 acres of woods behind me, and rarely do I get time to go walk in those woods. Uh, yet they're right there. Here is here's the beauty of God. All these creatures roaming around, and you know, I have we have so little margin in our lives, and we need to we need to recapture that. 
Well, I think you're right. I think that, that in, in particular, if we talk about ordinary means, the word sacraments and prayer, um, those last two, unsurprisingly, um, even many churches, there's still a teaching of the word, but substantial prayer in worship, substantial prayer in life, um, and regular uh, celebration of the sacraments doesn't happen because it, precisely because it takes time. But it's that time of stopping that we actually get our hearts in the spot where we actually say, Holy Spirit, what's, what's going on? What, what, do I, what do I, as I reflect on the Word and I reflect on my week, what is it that I'm uh, missing? I was just reading Edwards' resolutions yesterday. This is Jonathan Edwards, mid-18th century uh, pastor in Massachusetts. And one of the things which I've taught my people but didn't realize it was one of Edwards' resolutions was every night to look over my day and um, summarizing um, and see if there be any fault with it. A, a daily repentance. Um, but you got to stop for. And that's what we don't have. You're exactly right. We don't stop. I think also the preaching of the word. <clears throat> I mean, Hebrews 4 talks about how the word is a sword and how the word cuts us up into pieces. Um, and of course the reason we're cut is to be offered back I mean that's the reason we're cut but I think a lot of times the preaching and for us as ministers this is something we have to look at carefully it is easy for our preaching to lack to be dull to lack the cutting and so we end up with people who leave having been tapped on the shoulder instead of people who leave with their being cut to pieces you know and uh, so this preaching of the word can often not be done well, even though it's a, a great tradition, um, and we have have had lots of good preachers. I think in today's world, there's not a whole lot of preachers where you would sit under and leave going, "Ooh, I just got chewed up and spit out." And it doesn't mean that. I mean, obviously, the war's there to encourage and strengthen as well. But I think we're more in need of cutting most Christians today than we are in need of strengthening and comforting. And for many of us, that sin is not dealt with. Because of that, because the preaching lacks the thrust that it needs to to cut us to pieces. Now, when you say dull, you're not saying boring. No, you're you're saying dull as in a sword is dull. Exactly. That we we have the. In fact, many sermons today are anything but boring. We have very interesting sermons. Sure. Um, interesting being used in a, in a number of senses. There, <laughs> uh, we have sermons that that are geared towards being attractive to people. But when you say dull, you're talking about don't have, have that edge. Uh, Matt, can you, you've got, uh, I think you have the text there. Do you have First uh, Timothy? Uh, yeah, I had that. You, I'm sure you're thinking about that yeah, as we were yeah. saying that. Can you just read that for us? Because mm-hmm. you see there the pattern of what every sermon needs to have. Uh, you, oh, you're talking a different text than I was, but that's fine. Um, you're talking about Second Timothy three sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what Sean's referring to there is the talking about that all Scripture is um, useful. Uh, it's God breathed. This is Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching. That one we're real comfortable with. We like that. That's that. Any of us will teach somebody, but that's only part of it. Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, if we see a paucity of good works, which we do among modern Christians, we've got to wonder if this God-breathed word is being used in all the ways that it should be. And I think that, that uh, 
Peter's right. I don't think there's much of the rebuking, the correcting, the training in righteousness. And what's sad about that is, if you follow the pattern of the the guys here on the table, we're talking about the Heidelberg Catechism a little bit earlier, and um, if you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, the way that it's set up is it's set up to show man's guilt, the grace of God, and then the gratitude that man ought to give back and thankfulness to God in the form of good works. And if you don't have the gratitude, if you don't have the good work, something's broken earlier in the cycle. And if you don't have the guilt. That's exa- then that's the piece that's missing. Yeah. Because if I don't have the guilt, then I think grace is just teeny. You know, Jesus talks about who, um, you know, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. So if the gratitude is lacking, either uh, grace hasn't been put out as good as it is, or guilt hasn't been shown as bad as it is. And that, that, that those two, I always, the way that I teach my congregation is they, they ought to be like the two sides of a scale. That the bigger that I see my guilt is, the bigger that I see that grace is, and the more gratitude I have. But if I think I'm just a little sinner, then grace doesn't mean all that much, and it's no wonder I don't have much gratitude. But that's what it comes back to, to what Peter was saying, is if we don't look in the Word to compassionately show people the, their sin and the effect of it and how it not only dishonors God but it dismembers their family and their relationships and everything uh, then they don't know how guilty they are and they don't know how grace, how good grace is how big grace is and so they don't have any gratitude so they don't have these good works that they're supposed to be thoroughly equipped for by God's word in the hand of the preacher if you look at the sermons in the scriptures you very rarely find someone leaving a sermon uh, apathetic they're either upset or they're they're ready to be baptized and they're being born again. I mean, I think even think of Nathan coming to David. I mean, Nathan brought a story and Nathan pointed the finger at the king of Israel and said, this is the way it is. And you think of Peter and Acts and you think of Paul and, and you think of the prophets. People didn't leave those situations being like, well, that was just really neat. I'm just really happy. He was such a good speaker today. <laughs> such a good speaker. That Nathan, he's such a good guy. No, they don't leave that way. They leave They leave either just crushed or they leave angry and hardened that they don't want to hear it. Acts 17, good example, you know, uh, where Paul preached the resurrection of Christ there. So I think a lot of our preaching can be can be measured in, to some degree by the response of people and the, and how that regular preaching of the word, how do people react to that? And I don't think every week you need to look for an angry mob or every week you need to look for tears of repentance from everybody. But I think that should be happening on a regular basis to people. And then the Corinthians passage again, you know, again, those people didn't leave apathetic. This is one of the great uh, benefits that Jay Adams has brought to the church and especially in his emphasis on... Um, <coughs> Can we be, be so bold in our podcast to say purpose-driven preaching? <laughs> Is uh, that I think what Jay, tell the service, tell us. Tell us, yeah. Driven. Is that, that if the scripture's there and it's to equip us and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that part of the preacher's job is to find out why in the world did God put this here in the text and what in the world difference is it supposed to make? And that that's... What the preacher is to take into the pulpit. Why did God put this here? What sort of transformation is it supposed to bring into the life of the people of the covenant community? And if we don't preach that, then we're just preaching ourselves and our ideas. And it's no wonder the preaching doesn't have any force. I think in the Acts, in Acts 2, in Peter's first sermon, uh, uh, Peter, you, bring the, you brought this up, is that they, they left the sermon, sermon wanting to apply it to their lives. 
and that's how everyone should leave. And this is really this is something not just for for the the preacher, but for the congregant. Is are you as a member of a church uh, preparing to listen to a sermon? Are you taking notes while the sermon is being delivered? And as you go, are you applying that sermon? to your life because there in Acts what do we have we have all the people who hear the sermon and they ask what must I do to be saved now you ask the question you have to ask the question then is maybe Peter didn't have a full enough sermon if they're leaving the sermon saying what must I do to be saved but he goes on and he says you must believe in Jesus Christ and repent and so that is where we need to leave people every week we need to leave people every week with Jesus Christ and with the gospel, and seeing themselves as sinners. Matt, you were saying this a moment ago, that, that, that distinction between the holiness of God mm-hmm. and our sinfulness. Jack Miller uh, used to describe it, he'd say, before you became a Christian, your life was pretty much on, on level. You, you had no concept of the holiness of God, you had no concept of your own sinfulness. And then he said, you meet, when you met with Christ, what changed, and then this is the process of the Christian life, is that as you grow as a Christian, your knowledge of the holiness of God grows on the one hand, and on the other hand, your knowledge of your own sinfulness grows. It's not as if all of a sudden you see yourself as a sinner, but you never grow in that. You actually come to see yourself over time as the, the word of God is illuminated to you by the Spirit, over time you see yourself more and more as a sinner. You see more and more the things, uh, the ways that you fall short of the glory of God. And then I love how Jack Miller does this. Is As those two divide, uh, picture it like the two sides of a triangle going out, like a V going out. He says then, as you grow in the Christian life, the cross has to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger to bridge that gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness. And so grace actually grows in our life. Our perception of it. Our perception of it. That's true, because we have all the grace. At our justification, we have all the grace that we need. Uh, Peter, you made a point. This has been a while back when we started talking. You made a point about the fact when we come in the ordinary means of grace uh, to the ordinary means of grace, grace comes to us. Could you comment on that? Are you, are you saying that grace is infused to us? Or what is it that, what happens when I come to the preaching, when I come to the sacraments, when I come to prayer? How do I get grace through that? Well, I think the first point you have to make is something does happen as a believer um, and as an unbeliever, too. Um, the water, let's just take baptism, for example. Um, water is both a judgment and a salvation, in a sense. Um, that's what the ark was. The ark was judgment, or what was salvation? Water was salvation for no one his family. It was death for the rest. So, and, and I think that's true with each piece of the ordinary means. We're talking about the preaching of the word to those who are perishing. It is death to those who are being saved. It is life. Uh, the Lord's Supper. You eat the Lord's Supper. You incorrectly as an unbeliever you die prayer prayer separates prayer divides prayer gathers in the elect brings those who believe and separates the others you know the heathen are cast away in a sense and we see this with the psalms that's why we need to get back to praying the psalms and Mm -hmm. we're doing that in our worship so i think in each case you have a, a sense of judgment and you have a sense of salvation so those two things are there i also think uh that grace is given to us in that sense you just said, Matt, that we, and 
that we have all the grace we can get when we're born again, when we're justified. That is true, and yet somehow, and I think Calvin's right with this, it's a mystery beyond understanding. How is the Word a method of salvation? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's the Holy Spirit. How, how am I fed by taking this bread and wine? How am I saved through the cleansing of baptism? How am I saved in these situations? How does prayer change the will of God in a, in a you know, not in an open theistic sense, but in a real sense, biblical sense? I don't know how these things happen per se. I don't have, you know, a, um, a logical propositional statement A and B, and then you have effectual prayer per se. But God works through them, and these are the ways God has chosen chosen to work. And these are the ways that God feeds us and nourishes us and encourages us in our Christian walk. Uh, they are, grace is given. Grace is given in those instances. That's why they're means of grace. Uh, I don't, it's not automatically given. It's not like you just throw, throw people in a pool and all, they're safe. You know, it's not automatically uh, given. Otherwise, we'd be the first people out there with fire hoses, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But somehow in baptism, somehow in the eating of the supper, somehow in the hearing of the word preached, grace is given. And I think that's, that's one of the best, the best answer I can give at this point. Luther's got a great quote. This is um, from John Piper's um, book, The Legacy of Sovereign Joy, and he's quoting Luther and talking about Luther, talking about the relationship between the Word and the Spirit. How is it that we get this grace? How does it come through the Word? And um, I've been pondering this quite a lot lately, but this this is a quote I thought that, that was good. Luther says, For God wants to give you His Spirit only through the external Word. And um, Piper comments, the phrase, this phrase is extremely important. The external word is the book. And the saving, sanctifying, illuminating, I'm going to add a word, inward spirit of God, he says, comes to us through this external word. So the catechism question that Sean read in the introduction talks about the outward and ordinary means. And so how is it that this transformation takes place in us? There's an external word that the Spirit has inspired, that the Spirit then takes that external word and at work in us, in our hearts, takes the word that he inspired and applies it to us in the preaching, in the sacrament, as we see the gospel visible. Um, Sometimes even in the small uh, M means of grace in the mouth of somebody else talked about fellowship and, and how that is used and it's the word in the mouth of another that God uses but it's always that word that he's using this external word to us that the spirit takes and applies to us and in that sense in terms of our forgiveness we've gotten as much as we can but in terms of the work of the spirit it's sort of like uh, you know right hearted biblical revival that the spirit's given but he's not given in the same measure and it's us as well in our individual lives that when we sit under, that when we pray, when we sit under preaching, when we um, observe the celebrate the sacraments, um, the measure of the Spirit's work in our life increases as we avail ourselves to the means. And that's enough. Those exactly. means are enough. Uh, so often a healthy church today is, uh, healthy is equated with innovative. If, if you're new, if, if you are doing the thing that reaches you, the, the culture, and by reaches, you know, what do we mean? Do we mean, and we need to ask, what do we mean? Do we mean that causes the culture to grow in grace? Or do we mean that just gets people into a building? 
and I think that's that's an important distinction. Mark Dever uh, writes. Uh, I think this is from the uh, the state a statement on their website. Nine marks, uh, which is nine uh, number nine m a r k s dot o r g uh, nine marks ministries. Uh, Mark Dever writes this. He says, contrary to much popular wisdom, we think that God has spoken clearly in the Bible regarding the purpose, leadership, organization, and methods of the local church. See, that's what we're saying here is we think God has spoken clearly, that these are the ways, the ordinary means are the ways that God works. He goes on, uh, he says, so we want to challenge you to join us in reconsidering the clarity of God's word when it comes to the healthy growth of local congregations. We believe God designed the church to be fundamentally a display of his own glory and wisdom. That's exactly what we were saying with regard to the Corinthians 14 passage. Uh, And we think, uh, Mark goes on, he has deliberately structured that display in the shape of a loving community that illustrates for a watching world the close fellowship of the Trinity and the redemption that he has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Our goal is not simply to point out all the problems with the church, nor do we intend to suggest a fresh approach to doing church. In fact, there is nothing really new or innovative here. Rather, our goal is to point the way back to healthy church life by calling attention to the timeless biblical priorities, principles, and methods that God has ordained for the maturity of the local church. And that's exactly, that in a sense summarizes what, uh, what we have said here is that we want to be a healthy church. Uh, we want to be a church, and I think the people listening want to be in churches that are healthy, that are growing where they're growing personally because they're feeding on Christ through the word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. Now, I know all three of us were at a conference this last week, uh, the Embers to a Flame conference at Geneva College, and Harry Reeder was the... Uh, was the main speaker there, and he, he used an analogy uh, that, I, that I think draws this out. Maybe, Matt, you want to comment on this. It, the cultural, uh, our churches tend to either be on cultural steroids or they tend to be anemic. You want to you say more about that? Yeah, I think Harry makes a great point just in saying that we can, um, you can get a, and another friend of mine makes the same point from uh, who's got a varied background, but it's now in my church, and he says, you know, it's not hard to gather a crowd. All you got to do is give them cultural steroids. Give them, give them what the culture wants to give them, but do it in a church building, make them feel good about themselves, and you can gather a crowd anytime you want. Um, that's very unhealthy, though. You get uh, you know, football players to take steroids, and they die by the time they're age 50 because it's an unhealthy way to be, even though there's, you're big. But you can also be anemic. You can be unhealthy in the sense that um, you, know, you can have churches that are five miles deep but only an inch wide because they're much more interested in majoring. Other way around. Five miles wide, no, one inch deep. No, I'm saying the other oh, side. Oh, you're anemic, saying the other side. Yeah, the I'm anemic about church. Yeah, yes. the anemic church, which is real interested in, you know, deep theology, and, and all of us around the table are interested in deep theology. But for the masses, we don't want a few people that uh, you know. It's like Will Metzger says in um, Tell the Truth. Uh, you don't want uh, the minimal information to the maximal number of people. You want the maximal gospel information to the maximal number of people. We're, we're interested in deep, transformed people. Lots of them. Lots and lots of them. Shall we sing a chorus of deep and wide? <laughs> um, and it, but you can, you can be, the church can be so anemic and enamored with itself and with its own learning and with, um, you know, we got four of us and we're real happy, just go ahead and lock the door and we're, we're glad to be this size. 
that we don't take Christ's words in Matthew 28 seriously, that this is a gospel where that's the power of God to go to everybody. Um, and so you can go either way. You can be you can you can be happy to be anemic, or you can be thrilled to be on steroids. But neither one of them is actually healthy. Well, both both introduce death. Absolutely, both introduce death because steroids will eventually kill you, and being anemic will eventually kill you. Yep. And so you want to be you want to be healthy. Uh, you don't want to be you don't want to be pumped up, and you don't want to be uh, so skinny. Anorexic, yeah. Anorexic, yeah. Well, let's um, let's close our time. Uh, with, I have one more question. Uh, we have a um, uh, got a comment actually off of uh, the Life Under the Sun uh, blog was talking about our podcast and a, a gal there named Moonshadow. Everybody say hi to Moonshadow. Hi, hi Moonshadow. Uh, wh- made this comment. She said, I remember years ago telling my unbaptized Baptist friend about the ordinary means, and I was trying to convince my friend of the necessity of receiving water baptism. Well, my friend balked at the word ordinary because, as he said, there's nothing ordinary about salvation or grace for that matter. And so maybe we could close our time this morning by asking this question. Is, does ordinary mean mundane? Does ordinary mean we don't want the regenerative blessing of God, the supernatural work of God in our life? I think sometimes these sorts of things are kind of funny how they come up. This week, my wife was reading God in the Dock by C.S. Lewis, and he was saying, why do people have a problem with the resurrection, but they don't have a problem with bread? And he, what he, the point he's making is, is bread is miraculous. Bread is a miracle. It moves from a seed to a plant. And he's just talking about how we miss the miracles in the everyday mundane, in quotes, Mm -hmm. things that happen. You know, the creation of a child is one thing that may seem mundane to those of us who have many, many, many children. (laughs) And they continue to multiply. Um, But it's never mundane. And I I don't think the ordinary means are ever mundane in the sense that they're boring. I do think they're mundane in the sense that they're routine. I mean... Eating a meal, three meals a day, some of us eat more than three meals a day, it's not mundane to eat. It's, it's routine. It's what we do to live. The ordinary means is what we do to live. We come every single week to hear the preaching of the word because it's life. You know, We pray because it's life. We take the, the bread and wine because it's life. We're baptized because it's life. These things are life-giving to us and only when we miss that does it become boring now I do think it's mundane in the sense that it's routine but I don't think it's mundane in a bad sense um, I'm cheating off Matt here but Matt says it's only mundane if meeting with God is mundane and it's just not it's not meeting with God is glorious routine but glorious just like meeting with your wife I, I think your analogy to eating is, is a very good one because every time we sit down to eat it's, it's a new and different experience because we're in a different place in life, we're eating a different, we're eating different food. We might be at a different restaurant. We might be sitting at a different place at the table. We might have uh, different people sitting with us at the table. Well, the, the same that that analogy carries over to worship, because where I am this Sunday is not where I was last Sunday, and so worship becomes mundane if only if my life is mundane. If I'm not changing. If I'm not, uh, if I can say this, in tune with what the Spirit is doing in my life. Uh, we need, there's a sense in which if I'm coming to worship and I'm bored, I need to, to repent of being bored. Yeah. 
So the the onus is on me, not on the means. I had a uh, comment last year from a lady in my congregation. It wasn't directly to me. It was just sort of in loose company. And whenever you hear one comment as a pastor, you assume that there's probably at least five more people that have the same sense. And the comment sort of went like this. Um, you know, roughly speaking, you know, Christians can't really grow if Sunday's their only experience uh, in the congregation. And there's a sense in which, yeah, you need personal worship, you need corporate worship. But this person's sense of the way that they said it was that um, preaching isn't it. Preaching isn't the way that we actually grow. Meeting with the people of God, meeting with God, is not the way that people really grow in the Christian life. And um, pastors get really annoyed when they hear things like that, especially when <laughs> they get paid and they spend an enormous amount of time preparing sermons and praying and passionately trying to pour themselves out as though God were speaking through them because he is. And um, But I think that part of it is, and part of why I did a short series on listening to sermons and how you listen to a sermon is, I was bold enough to say from my pulpit, God speaks here every week. Are you listening? And that's, we've lost that sense that every time the word is read out loud, irrelevant of how heretical or how good the preacher is, God has spoken. Are we listening? The word of God never returns void. Oh, what a what a great place. Let's uh let's close our time with that. Just chew on that for the next uh for the next month or so. Actually, we've got a um special podcast coming up for you at the end of this month. So, uh this is not uh, you get a two for one deal uh in March of 2006. I want to encourage you to check back with the uh, ordinary at the ordinary means uh website. Uh, we should have a special uh, question and answer podcast for you where we're going to answer some of your questions that you posted at the website. Uh, but in the meantime, as you're listening to the podcast, we encourage you to go over to uh, OrdinaryMeans.com, click through to the blog, and there at the blog you can leave your comments. We welcome your comments, your suggestions, uh, your questions, and we'll put them on uh, future special podcasts where we uh, do just that, answer your questions about the Ordinary Means of grace. So as we uh, leave you today, uh, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue Him through His ordinary means.